Well, good morning. Many of you know me. My, my name is Wayne Stiles, and my wife Kathy and I have attended the marathon class for a long time. I, I tried to do the mental math on what it was, and I guess it's been, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Maybe 10 years. It's been a long time. And it's great to finally be able to qualify to attend. <laughs> when we first started, I was 40 years old, and I read somewhere, I guess in the bulletin, that you have to be 50 or greater to be in here, so <laughs> finally I qualify. Well, many of you have asked, um, just kind of a personal update, we didn't have a prayer and share time this morning, or a sharing time. Uh, I shared with you about six months ago uh, the, the challenging transition that uh, Kathy and I faced having lost my job. And um, But anyway, I want to just give you an update uh, publicly to let you know that the Lord has walked with us the whole time. He has been very faithful to us in his provision as well as uh, giving me a new direction as far as vocation. Um, I am, I've started a website that gives virtual tours of the Holy Land, which is basically what uh, I love to do. I love to give real tours of the Holy Land, but also I have uh, a website that gives virtual tours. And what that means is basically uh, I've taken lots of video of, of tours of Israel, and uh, I walk the members of the website through this um, uh, various sites and apply it to your life. So uh, that's what I'm doing as well as doing some writing for um, another ministry. So God is uh, meeting our needs and I just want to give him praise for that and many of you I know have been praying for us and uh, supporting us with your prayers and good words so thank you for that. We, uh, we, we're grateful. And I also want to say, uh, being asked to teach uh, June and July as a substitute for Dr. Toussaint is tremendous privilege. Uh, tremendous privilege. I remember 28 years ago when I first sat under Dr. Toussaint's teaching at Dallas Seminary. Uh, I knew nothing about the Bible, very little. Something about Jesus, I think, and that, that's about it. And now I know a little more than nothing. That's one thing that seminary does, is shows you how much you don't know. But it is a privilege, Dr. Toussaint, to be able to fill in for you. It really is. And I'll tell you, I speak for all of us. We miss you. We miss hearing great honks stone the crows and starve the lizards. You know? <laughs> we really do. And, and I, you know it's been too long when you can't remember... What is so great about Hinckley, Minnesota? <laughs> you know, I even put my hand over my heart and I tried to remember. Where the women are wild. What was it? See, I can't remember what it is. We need, we need you to tell us. So, oh, men are men, or women are... I can't remember what it is. Slightly above average, that's right. Yes. And flowers are pansies and something like, something like that. <laughs> Well, there, there were two men walking down the road, two friends, and they come up on this bottle, and uh, they, they open it up, and out pops a genie. Genie says, okay, I'm going to give you a wish, but I'm going I'm to grant the wish to the first one of you two that makes the wish. 
you're going to get your wish. But here's the catch. Whatever you wish for, I'm going to give the other friend double. Well, neither one of them wanted to say what they wanted. I mean, they immediately knew what they wanted. But they didn't want to say it because they didn't want the other guy to get double. So one hour passes, two hour passes, and finally, the more impatient and the more greedy of the two friends reaches over and shakes his friend and says, make your wish. And the friend goes, okay, I wish to be blind in one eye. The story is a parable of greed. It's, it's a parable of discontent. And it's a, a, a disturbing reality, honestly, of our own hearts sometimes. Let me give you an example that isn't quite so jarring. <laughs> Back when our daughter, uh, our, well, I won't say which daughter, but it was when our daughter was much, much younger, we had an Easter egg hunt, and she was begging Kathy that she could eat chocolate uh, eggs. And Kathy said, well, you can only have a few. Um, you know, you can't just eat the whole basket full of eggs. And constantly she was asking, may I please have more, may I please have more. Finally, Kathy said, look, eat all you want. Just empty your basket. Eat them all. She's like, really? And so she goes to town. And foil is going everywhere. And finally, she's she's glutted herself with chocolate Easter eggs. And that night was pitiful. <laughs> oh, mommy, my tummy hurts. And our daughter got to learn by experience what she refused to learn by instruction. Discontent, discontent, like that story I told you at the beginning, it can blind us. Discontent blinds us to the blessings that we have had all along. Sometimes the only thing worse than God refusing to give us what we want is Him giving us what we want, isn't it? I'd like to look at a passage today in Genesis chapter 39. So turn, if you would, to Genesis 39, and we're going to look at the last words Of Jacob. Genesis 49. Did I say 39? 49. Genesis 49. Jacob, the patriarch, is on his deathbed and he is going to share some words with his 12 sons that are very instructive for us as we think about having a, having a content heart. Genesis 49, before we read this text, I want to ask you to just think about your own life for a moment. What's the worst mistake you've ever made? If you're like me, it probably ranks as the worst mistake because of the fallout that happened afterwards. Um, we tend to not think that mistakes are that bad when the results aren't that bad. And it's really hard for us to gauge what, what 
bad decisions are going to have the worst fallout because we can't anticipate them. We can't anticipate others' reactions. We can't anticipate the Lord's response. We can't anticipate how far sin will take us, or we never would have done it. Wouldn't it be great to be able to go back and change that? Um, I think most of us would give a right arm to be able to go back and undo whatever it was that came to your mind when I asked, what's the one thing that you've done that you wish that you hadn't done? Wouldn't it be great to change the past? Well, we can't change the past that was. But Jacob's words here in Genesis 49 give us insight into how to change the past that will be. And let's begin right at the very first verse. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So Jacob is on, Jacob is on his deathbed. He, he gathers his 12 sons to his, to his side, and he says he's going to tell them of what's going to happen in the days to come. Take a quick glance down at verse 28. This is kind of the summary of what we're about to look at, but I think it's helpful to look at this first. Verse 28, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. So, Jacob is blessing each of his 12 sons with the, with the blessing that's appropriate to each one. And sometimes that blessing comes as an official uh, censure, as it were, which sort of stretches the definition of blessing. But final words or benediction, it's Jacob's final words to his sons about their future. And he speaks to each one appropriately. And the first one that he speaks to is the one that was born first, Reuben. Verse 3, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You can almost see him like turning to the side and saying, can you believe what he did? He went up to my couch. He's speaking of an event that occurred back in chapter 35. You don't have to turn there, but because it, it's just one simple short verse that says that Reuben went in and slept with his father's, one of his father's concubines. And... This is less an act of passion than it was an act of presumption. Reuben, being the firstborn, knew he had the rights of the firstborn, and then when the father would die, Reuben stood first in line to be the one in charge, to be the leader of the tribe. And as the leader of the tribe, all that was Jacob's would become his. That's the way it worked. You might remember... um, and another incident similar to this, of course, it was sort of Absalom's you know, thumb in David's face. But when Absalom rode into town, they pitched a tent on the roof, 
and Absalom lay with ten of his father's concubines. It was, it's, it's, a, it's an affront. It's a way of saying, it's now all mine. And for Reuben to do this act, again, it's less an act of passion, more an act of presumption of him trying to take what would be his before it was time. And in, try, and in doing that, Reuben lost it all. As we just read in Genesis 49. Uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. Um, keep your finger there in Genesis 49 and slip over to Numbers chapter 32. I want to show you a quick incident that occurred with the tribe of Reuben. Like father, like sons. The tribe of Reuben. They've entered the promised land. They're about ready to cross over or the, they're preparing to enter the, enter the promised land. Numbers chapter 32, look at verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock. Slip down to verse 5. They said, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So the tribe of Reuben, they're still on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They've not entered the promised land yet. And they look around, and they've got great flocks, and they look around at this land that's just overlooking the Dead Sea. It's right near the area of Mount Nebo, uh, in what's today the, called the, the Madaba or the Madiba Plateau, right there just east of uh, the Dead Sea. And it was lush. And they said, we don't need to go over into the Promised Land. This will do just fine. We'll just stay here. And they ask, let's just move in now rather than have to cross the Jordan. I hope you see a similar pattern between Reuben and the sons of Reuben. They're willing to settle for second best. Or in the, in the case of the tribe of Reuben, they're willing to settle on second best. Literally. Look at the back of your Bible at the maps. You've got a maps in the back of your Bible? Look at those maps and see if you have one on the 12 tribes. If you don't have one on the 12, 12 tribes, just find one, kind of an Old Testament one, that shows all of Israel. And uh, I just I found out this morning that we've got audiovisuals on the screen, so here in the next couple of months, I'll probably bring my laptop and make this a little easier for us as we look at various spots. But look at your map, or look at the map in the lap next to you, if you don't have one, <laughs> and find the Dead Sea. It's at the bottom. It may be called the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. It's the largest body of water there in the land of Israel. You see it? You find the northern shore of the Dead Sea, and then to the right of that, in modern Jordan, uh, is where Reuben settled. That, that is where Reuben settled. And Gad was just north of that, and then half of Manasseh was just north of that. These two and a half tribes settled on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. So we don't need to cross over into what God's promised us. This will do just fine. 
and they literally have settled on second best. But I don't know if you also have, if, if it shows the tribes there, maybe it doesn't even show the tribes. Maybe it just says Moab or Ammon or far, farther south, Edom. These are pagan nations that eventually just consumed these tribes. Uh, as the Old Testament goes on, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, less and less do you read about their even existence on the eastern side of the Jordan River because Ammon and Moab basically consumed these tribes. So the Lord knew the future. The Lord knew the promised land that I want to give you, what I want to give you is far better than what you want me to give you. What I want to give you is far better than what you want me to give you. Reuben says, look, I'll just take it now. And in doing that, he lost it. The tribe of Reuben said, look, I'll just take it now. And in doing that, eventually, they lost it. So here's a, a lesson from the life of Reuben, the first lesson of our time together this morning. And it's this. Running ahead of God is settling on second best, and it's never worth it. Running ahead of God is settling on second best, and it is never worth it. Flip back to Genesis 49, and let's look at the next two sons, because the same proves true of them. Verse 5, Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, God sees the future that we don't see. And these two sons, we're told, um, are brothers. Well, they are brothers, but Jacob meant more than they are simply brothers. What he meant was they don't only have the same mother, they have the same manner, violence, and vengeance. Verse 6, anger, self-will. Verse 7, anger, cruelty. The incident that's being spoken of here occurred back in Genesis 34 when their sister, Dinah, was raped in Shechem. Remember what Simeon and Levi did? They had this false covenant with all the Shechemites and said, look, if you guys will be circumcised, we'll, we'll co-mingle co with you and we'll share and share alike. Well, the people of Shechem bought it and while they were still in pain from the circumcision, Simeon and Levi rushed in with their swords and killed all the males. They took matters into their own hands. Now, right, it wasn't right that their sister be raped, but is that the right way to deal with it? Um, the Lord thought otherwise, and Jacob thought otherwise, and as a result, Simeon and Levi also ran ahead of God's will. God sees the future. God sees the future that we can't see. And as a result, 
He knows the, the results and the fallout that are going to occur if we don't wait on him. The tragedy here of Reuben and is that he lost what he could have had. The, the tragedy of Simeon and Levi is that they also were, in, in a sense, consumed with the future. You, you read the, um, the, the end of verse 7. It says, I will disperse them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. If you look back at the map at the back of your Bible, try to find where the tribe of Levi is. Well, you won't find it. <laughs> because the Levites had no inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance, but as far as physical land, all they had were 48 Levitical cities that were scattered all throughout Israel, but they had no place of their own. What Jacob said turned out to be true. I will scatter them in Israel. And then Simeon, now he has a spot inside of Judah. And eventually, the tribe of Simeon was consumed by Judah and basically disappeared as far as its land. So again, we see that these three tribes, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, by running ahead of what God wanted, the best that he wanted for them, they settled on second best. You know, it's always tempting to chase uh, the good life, isn't it? To, to chase how life ought to be in our minds. To chase the dreams. It's sort of like a carrot on a stick, though. You never really feel like you got it. Um, my uh, study of Hebrew felt like that. When I was trying to learn Hebrew, it's like, you know, if this, is, if, if this represents complete understanding, I was always right here with it. But in that process, I was moving forward. But I never felt like I got it. Still don't feel like I have it. I'm still working on English, to be honest with you. It... it it was never there. That's what, that's what chasing the good life is like. It's like a carrot on a stick. It is a lure to get you to go a certain direction without ever accomplishing what you're after. And our culture does a great job of marketing this. They create a need in our hearts that can be satisfied with only their product. And as a result, we, um, we chase it. It's sort of like uh, eating potato chips. You know, you, you can eat, you, want to, you eat one potato chip and you want to eat, you know, half a bag of potato chips. Unless they're, unless they're you know, low-fat chips, then you can eat the whole bag. <laughs> and Coca-Cola is the same way. You take a sip, it doesn't satisfy your thirst. You have to want, you want more of it. And it's designed to do that. Our culture is rigged not only with potato chips and food, but with lures into our hearts that pull us forward but never satisfy. These three brothers experienced that the hard way. At the end of Genesis, we see this. We also saw it at the very beginning of Genesis, didn't we? You don't have to turn there, but just think, go there with me in your mind to the ideal life. The ideal life, Adam and Eve had it. I mean, it was paradise. Literally paradise. It was perfect. Everything they needed was there. Perfect job. The perfect spouse. Plenty of food. 
no problem of what to wear every day. It was paradise, literally. They had everything they needed except one thing. Except one thing. Deep within their hearts, there was a possibility of discontent. It wasn't sin, but it was potential. And it had to be there so that their worship of God was their choice and it was genuine. They weren't just puppets doing what God had programmed them to do, but they were responding to his love. If there isn't an alternative to obedience, that is, disobedience, then the obedience isn't necessarily genuine and from the heart. So even in paradise, there was the potential of sin. So when I say, if we're chasing, if we're trying to find the perfect circumstance, if we're trying to find uh, what, what is God's will for my life right now, and we believe the delusion that if we get inside of whatever God's will is for your life, then everything's just going to be fine. Even in Eden, there were snakes. Even in Eden, there were temptations. There were struggles and challenges. So when I said they lacked one thing, what was it they lacked? Obedience. You can be in paradise, but if you don't have obedience, it is still not the ideal life that you're chasing. So in some sense, our circumstances are irrelevant. It does, we can be in paradise or we can be in prison. The secret is obedience to God. Because even in the midst of perfection, Adam and Eve chose to sin. So, in the midst of God's will for us, we've got to think about the same thing. In God's wisdom, he gives us the life that we get, not the life that we want. God in his love gives us the life that we get, not the life that we want. Because he's wise. So although it seldom feels this way, the ideal life that we're chasing comes from obedience. Humility and obedience. Reuben settled on the wrong land. Simeon and Levi took matters into their own hands. And as a result, they lost it. Now we've got a contrast in brothers. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Judah. Now Judah had done his share of foolish mistakes. We could easily go back in Genesis and uh, wag our finger at Judah. Judah was the one that had the bright idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the one that had the bright idea to uh, visit a prostitute. Turns out it was his daughter-in-law. How was he to know that? But here's the one thing that Judah did do. He came clean. 
In each of those instances, he repented. And he realized that was a mistake. And ultimately, Judah, you remember in the story of Joseph how Judah was the one that said, look, don't imprison Benjamin, take me instead. Let Benjamin go back. Judah was the one that basically said, I'll give my life for his. And the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant passed over the first three sons, and it landed on the fourth son, Judah. It would be through Judah that the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant would pass ultimately through the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Which gives us a great insight here into all this lion's whelp and prey and couches and and lying down and rousing up. The speaking of the lion of Judah ultimately is found in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that also in verse 10 where it says that the scepter, meaning the ruler's staff, is not going to depart from Judah. Judah is the one that's going to have the kings. Judah is the one through whom the, the right to rule is going to pass until, until it comes to Shiloh. You've got there in verse 10 this phrase, until Shiloh comes. Now some of you may not have that. Some of you may have uh, an actual translation of the word Shiloh. The word Shiloh in Hebrew comes from a word that uh, it could also simply refer to, uh, uh, to the one to whom it belongs. In fact, my margin says until he comes to Shiloh or until he comes to whom it belongs. I think if you have the New International Version, it may say something similar to that. But it's speaking of Christ, the one to whom it belongs. And the Apostle John knew this. The Apostle John obviously had this kind of insight when he said that we beheld the glory of, of Jesus and he dwelt among us. John 1 verse 14. He dwelt among us. And that word dwelt means tabernacle. And the idea of the tabernacle, what was the name of the place where when they finally entered the land, the glory of God and the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle, what was the name of the place where that tabernacle dwelt? It was Shiloh. Exactly. And so the insight of bringing all this together of the ruler's staff is going to go all the way through Judah until Shiloh comes. The ultimate one that represents the embodiment of God's glory on earth. We're not talking about Shiloh and the tabernacle. We're talking about the ultimate Shiloh. And notice that, uh, at least in my Bible, Shiloh is capitalized. It's a person. It's not just a place. The place is simply a metaphor of ultimately Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. He tabernacled among us. In fact, I think Young's literal translation says that he became flesh and did tabernacle among us. So these metaphors that are given here of Judah are rich. And, of course, in hindsight, we can look back on them and and have great understanding. But, of course, initially, they were probably scratching their heads like, Lion? You know, in Shiloh? What what does all this mean? And then this, this next part about all this wine. I mean, good grief. A lot of wine there, verse 11. You know, uh, wash his garment in wine, blood of grapes, his eyes are dull from wine. It's a lot of wine. What's all the wine and the teeth white from an abundance of milk? 
This is talking about, this milk and wine is talking about uh, a time of prosperity that the scripture would ultimately reveal to be in the Messiah's kingdom, which is why when Jesus, his first miracle was an abundance of wine. And Mary knew this because she hinted at Jesus, they're out of wine, meaning hint, hint, be a great time to get this whole kingdom thing rolling. And Jesus' answer to her, it says, woman, it's not my time yet. He didn't mean it wasn't time to help out the wedding party because he did that. It means it's not my time yet to go ahead and start the kingdom. Mary understood that the abundance of wine ultimately pointed to the beginning of the kingdom. And that's what Jacob is pointing to through the tribe of Judah. Well, we're not going to go through every one of these brothers. Uh, most of them are kind of sidebars anyway as far as uh, the importance of their application to our lives. But let's Let's skip over a bunch of them and look down at verse 22 at Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestor. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. It's a lot of blessing. A lot of blessing. Five times. Jacob uses this word in reference to Joseph. Joseph was blessed because even though the archers bitterly attacked him, that's kind of a, that's a veiled reference to his brothers standing around, even though these archers attacked you, you stood firm. You, you, you clung to God in the midst of all your trials. He clung to the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone, wonderful pictures of who God was, who was unchanging and faithful. Here's the second lesson from Judah and Joseph. They teach us that blessings follow those who endure with faithfulness. Blessings follow those who endure with faithfulness. Now, they don't immediately follow. They don't always. You look at the life of Joseph. He was 22 years from the time that he was sold as a slave till the time that he reconciled with his brothers. Uh, and ultimately, it may not even be in this life. I want to show you one little verse that is significant. Back up, we're at, we started at 22 with Joseph. Back up to verse 18. And, and Jacob says a few words here that are pregnant with meaning. In verse 18, Jacob says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. So he just kind of pauses for a moment from all the talking about his sons, and he prays to God. And he says, for your salvation, I wait, O Lord. The word here, wait, in Hebrew is in a form that is intensive. And so it means that he is not just waiting, but eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting for God. And he says, I'm waiting for your salvation. Now, that could mean a lot of things. But remember, Jacob's on his deathbed. So he's not talking about physical 
salvation because he's dying and he knows he's dying. So he's talking about something much greater. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The word there for salvation is the word, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's the word Yeshua. I don't think Jacob had Jesus in mind, but Jesus' words, Jesus' name, the word means the Lord saves. For your salvation, I wait, O Lord. Jacob is looking to the resurrection. He is not looking to um, a physical salvation that's going to happen then and there. He's looking to the far future and the resurrection. And if we look again once um, at the very end of this chapter, just kind of scan those verses. I won't read them, but from verses 29 and following, Jacob charges his sons to bury him in the cave of Machpelah in Canaan. So they're in Egypt, and he says, I want you to take my body, and I want you to bury it back with Abraham and Isaac in the cave of Machpelah, because I believe in the future of what God has promised us in that land. I will be resurrected, and that's where I want to be. So Jacob is looking to the future, and I... I bring that up as I mentioned this second lesson. Blessings follow those who endure with faithfulness. You may endure with faithfulness all your life. You may have. You may be at uh, a stage in your life where you feel like, you know what, Um, I've been faithful all my life, and I'm still waiting for God's blessing. You know what? So was Jacob. So was Jacob. And Jacob's mindset here was, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I eagerly wait for your salvation. Jacob was looking to the resurrection. He wasn't looking to this life. We see people running ahead here, these brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, running ahead and grabbing too soon. And they they ultimately lost it. And they found it. It's like grasping oil the Proverbs talk about. It's, it, it doesn't work when you chase the carrot on the stick in this life. It just doesn't work. So let me ask you, what are you asking God for right now? What are you asking God for right now? What if he actually said yes? Would that be a blessing? It might be. might be great. Remember John the Baptist? As he was imprisoned in the uh, prison there at Machairus, and, and Antipas was about to lop his head off, John the Baptist was looking around going, where are the blessings I preached about? Where is this Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And he sent messengers to ask, are you the one? Are you the expected one? Or should we expect somebody else? Because you haven't really met my expectations of the expected one. And Jesus graciously sends a message back and says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart about me. John's hope was a good hope, wasn't it? It was the kingdom. But John wanted the kingdom right then, as did everybody else. And honestly, that's what you and I are after too. We're after the kingdom right now. Thy kingdom come today. In fact, Lord, let me tell you what that would look like. What are you asking for right now? Maybe a great thing, but I'll tell you what. 
What God wants to give you is far greater than what you want him to give you. You got a great picture of what God's blessing in your life would look like. That's great. But the life God gives you is greater than the life God wants to give you because God is sovereign and God's got a plan. And what he wants to do in your heart is greater than what you want him to do on the outside. Remember Israel? I hear zippers. Are we supposed to stop at 1145 (laughs) or 12? 12. Zippers are kind of the informal cue that you're done. (laughs) I hate zippers, by the way. Why did anybody invent Bibles with zippers? Okay, so I just want to make sure. So it's still got... Ten and a half minutes here. What are you asking God for? What did Israel ask God for? Lord, we're tired of all these judges. We want a king like all the other nations. Give us a king like all the other nations. We want to be like all the other nations. We don't want to be like what you want us to be. Give us a king. God says, okay, I'll give you exactly what you want. And it was terrible. Saul was a horrible king. And incidentally, Saul wasn't from Judah. Didn't give him what, the Lord didn't give them what he wanted to give them, which would be a man after his own heart from David, like David gave him Saul from Benjamin. James and John, Lord, give us the best seats in the house. You know, you can have the throne, that's for you, but let us sit on your right and on your left. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Do you really want me to say yes to that? Because can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? It's going to be hard. Mary and Martha, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. You know, that's right. If I'd been there, I could have saved him from dying. But by allowing him to die, I give you the joy of experience and a resurrection, which is far greater than a healing. What would you like to experience, a healing or a resurrection? You see, we're asking God for things right now and the most gracious, most gracious answer, only eternity is going to reveal how God's best answer to us was saying no. And how sometimes his judgment in our lives is when he says yes. Is that really what you want? I'll give it to you. But it'll give leanness in your soul. So I don't know your situation today, and yet I know your situation today. Because your life is hard. Uh, life is hard. It's, it's intended by God not uh, to be a life that requires faith. There's no circumstance that you're ever going to be in that doesn't require faith. You're never going to get to a point in your spiritual life where you think, finally, Lord, I've arrived. No more faith is required. You've got to have faith. Even the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Peter, you re- read their stories, they had to have faith. Um, let me just share with you a, a, a metaphor that I hope you don't forget. Think about an apple. And when you get down to the inside of an apple, there are seeds in that apple. Now, you could pull them out and you could count them. Anybody can count the seeds that are in an apple. But only God can count the apples that are in a seed. Only God knows the full potential that's inside that little bitty seed. And I use that as a metaphor for 
two gardens. We've seen one as we've talked about Adam in the garden and the decision that he ultimately made or was responsible for making, and that was the fall of the whole human race. But there was another garden and another man and another time that also made a decision that affected the whole human race. And Paul contrasts these two gardens and two men and two decisions in Romans 5 where he talks about the one man, all fall, all fell, and the other man, Christ, all were potentially made righteous. Adam never would have done, never would have done what he did if he had known the full potential of it. Now, think back to the, the worst thing in your life that you've done. You never would have done that if you had known the full potential of it. You can't go back and change that, but here's what you can change. You can't change the past that was. You can change the past that will be. And we're given a, a glimpse of these brothers' successes and failures all throughout Genesis, and it, there's a pinnacle right here at Jacob's deathbed. Genesis 49, all 12 tribes are mentioned here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're told that the decisions that they made had an effect on their future and their children's future and their tribes to come after them. Same is true of us. It's never too late to begin to change and to follow God and to be uh, faithful to Him. You may think, this little decision doesn't matter. Remember the apple. Remember all the apples that are going to come from the seed of that decision that you're making today. So you've got decisions before you in your life and you're going to be challenged to make a simple compromise. Reuben made a simple compromise. Uh, Simeon and Levi made a simple compromise. And as a result, the blessing passed over them and landed on Judah, through whom came the Messiah. The same is going to be true for us. The tragedy of Reuben and Simeon and Levi is what could have been. But there's also hope from this chapter because Judah and Joseph also show us of not what could have been, but what can be, if you'll dig in and be faithful to God. Well, look at that, five minutes early. <laughs> let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for Genesis 49 and the words that Jacob on his deathbed shared with his sons and by the inspiration of your spirit have shared with us. These aren't just words of an old man giving blessing and chastisement to his sons, but they're words of the Holy Spirit speaking to hearts that are open and teachable today. Are we, are we teachable today, Lord? Keep our hearts open to these truths. May we not be like Reuben and Simeon and Levi that rushed ahead that took matters into our own hands that decided that what we want is going to be far better than what you want to give us. Give us the patience and wisdom to trust you, that you see the apple, you see the potential of each decision that's made. And so while what is immediately in front of us may look wonderful, God, give us the strength today to wait upon you for what you will make wonderful in your timing. Satan would tell us when we're young that we have plenty of time to follow you. And then Satan tells us when we're old that too much water has passed under the bridge. Why start now? But you would tell us, Father, that today is the day 
that we rededicate our lives to you, our hearts to you, and we rededicate every simple decision that we make to obedience and trust the results with you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.